What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Art as resistance is a bedrock of law and disorder. Artists can have conversations with the world that are impossible in any other medium, and art plays a crucial role in partnership in social justice movements that change the globe. Our guests today have been part of that effort and movement with the Roadside Theater Company, which has been in existence for almost 50 years. We are joined today by Ben Fink, Donna Porterfield, and A.B. Spellman. Ben Fink worked with the Roadside Ensemble 2015 through 2020 as a member of the Betsy Scholar Circle as the founding organizer of the Letcher County Culture Hub and the Performing Our Future Coalition and as the co-founder of the cross-partisan dialogue project Hands Across the Hills. Ben was recognized by Time Magazine as one of 27 people bridging divides across America. He is the general editor of the Art in Democracy Selected Plays of the Roadside Theater Anthology, which we will be discussing today. Donna Porterfield was Managing Director of Roadside Theater from 1979 to 2019 with oversight responsibility for all of the theater's personnel and financial matters. Also, a playwright. Playwriting credits include Thousand Kites, Voices from the Battlefront, Junebug, Jack, and Corn Mountain, Pine Mountain, Following the Seasons. And third, we are joined by A.B. Spellman, a poet and essayist. He has written extensively on jazz. For 30 years, he worked with the National Endowment for the Arts. For about half the time, he was director of the Expansion Arts Program, and the other half, he was deputy chairman. All of our guests this morning are contributors and editors to a two-part anthology of the Roadside Theater called Art and Democracy. Volume 1 is the Appalachian History Plays, and Volume 2 is the Intercultural Plays. Good morning to you all. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. So Roadside Theater was founded in 1975. I'd like someone to walk us through the origin story and specifically the conditions in the Appalachia at the time that spurred on this work. Donna, maybe your best uh, to, to throw that question to first. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, really, uh, we would have to start with uh, in the 1960s uh, with Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. And he announced the War on Poverty from a front porch in the Appalachian coal fields. Um, as a result of that, we then had in our mountains uh, journalists flooding in to the coal fields, um, and they took a lot of pictures. They, they particularly liked to take pictures of uh, very poor people and uh, maybe little children, uh, as I recall myself, playing in the mud in front of the house because it was fun, but they would take those kinds of pictures and they end, ended up on front pages and were uh, degrading. Um, so in 1969, if we fast forward a bit, um, there was money uh, coming for uh, the uh, Appalachian uh, Film Workshop. With this, this was the beginning of Apple Shop. Um, for example, uh, they had got a lot of uh, film equipment, and they began taking uh, sound and pictures of folks in the mountains uh, and talked a lot to older people in the mountains. And the pictures that they took and the films that they made um, rang far more true with the local people and, and uh, really with the country at large when they saw uh, who Appalachians uh, really were. Um, the teenagers, they were teenagers, they were kids, and they uh, also uh, really took their time with people and uh, that they were more realistic, actually, than the, than the professionals with what they were doing. Um, I, was, I was a teacher in first grade, and um, I did not know about Apple Shop at that time. 
Um, and I heard about this play called Red Fox Second Hanging that they were going to do in the little tiny town of uh, Appalachia, Virginia. So a friend of mine came to visit me and we went to this play, uh, Red Fox Second Hanging. And about in the middle of it, both of us just began crying. <laughs> and when we went out at the end, we talked to each other. And the reason we were crying was because we had really, we had seen a lot of theater, but we had never seen theater that were about us, that were about our people, that were stories that we grew up with. And so that was, um, that was a turning point for me. And the next year, um, I was hired by a roadside theater that was just starting out in uh, 1970. Uh, 1975 was the beginning, but 1976 was when they uh, pinned Red Fox Second Hanging. We began touring uh, in uh, rurally and uh, nationally. And I would also say, that without, um, without grants from the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the uh, Humanities, um, we would have had a hard go of it at Apple Shop and of the different divisions in Apple Shop because those uh, sources, um, we, we received significant money from those sources, but um, also the, the National Endowment brought us together in Washington to go over proposals and to make uh, judgments about, you know, what, who was being funded, how much they were being funded. And uh, we, we also had a the system that was set up by the National Endowment for the Arts where we could go to another town, to another theater company and, um, and talk to them and then write up something and send it back to the National Endowment uh, for the Arts. And in this way, uh, we, you know, we might be reviewing uh, something in New York City and someone from New York City may come to the little town of Whitesburg, Kentucky and view uh, one of our plays. So that's... I would say that's kind of it in a nutshell right now. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. Ben, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I think Donna talked about Apple Shop, right? It's a multimedia cultural organization in the coal fields of Kentucky, right on the Virginia line, West Virginia, not too far away. And it is how can people in a place that has long been economically exploited tell their own stories in their own ways that a big when you're looking to exploit a group of people an important part of what you got to do is make other people believe that the people that you're going to exploit aren't worth very much so that's the story that donna was saying about kids playing in the mud because it's fun to play in the mud but the phot photographers come and they say, oh, look at these kids living in squalor and their parents don't know how to keep them clean and all this stuff. And so as a pretext for, well, clearly we need to come in and, you know, police them and take them and, and they can't be responsible for their own economic futures. And so this is the project that Apple Shop and Roadside, which is the theater division of Apple Shop, was involved with from the beginning and in doing that work starting really locally the way that donna talked about realized first okay we actually don't have an economy in the coal fields of east kentucky that can support a full-time professional theater so they started touring out of necessity, out of economic necessity, taking Red Fox Second Hanging to New York, um, and from there getting national critical attention that brought some of that money back home. The other thing they started to do is tour to lots of communities around the country, including communities where there was more wealth, where people could afford to buy tickets to professional theater. And in doing that touring, 
Roadside got connected with a bunch of other theater companies that all came out of the, some directly out of the civil rights movement, like Junebug Productions, and some inspired by the civil rights movement, like Roadside and many others, that were doing the same work in communities that on their surface don't look very much alike. Black communities, Puerto Rican communities, indigenous communities, Jewish communities, urban, rural, north, south. And these companies started touring together and getting to know each other on tour and recognizing how much they shared and how much their communities shared. And so that's really the the second half of the story. Art in a Democracy is a two-volume collection, and volume one is the stories, the the plays that tell the stories of a people's history of Appalachia, of the coal fields, from the first time the Scots-Irish met the Cherokee up through the Vietnam War. And then volume two is about those plays where intercultural alliances that many people have would have trouble imagining um, are really portrayed on stage in a whole lot of interesting and unexpected ways that break down a lot of barriers. Thank you, Ben. Um, and ABMX, I'm going to bring you into the conversation in, in just a second, but we've mentioned Red Fox second hanging twice now. Uh, which one of you wants to give a synopsis about what that piece is about? And it's included in volume one. Do it. Uh, well, uh, Red Fox was uh, a character that was around uh, in this area for for a way back, and even though it had been uh, in the it was, this was in the uh, late eighteen hundreds, and even though it had been a long time ago, uh, local people here have still told all the stories of uh, Red Fox and uh, other, other folks as well, but particularly about Red Fox, uh, who was a uh, hag. So Don Baker and Dudley Cock, who uh, wrote this play script, just went around and talked to people and gathered all kinds of stories. And then they also went up into the, um, the local courthouse attic where there were very old uh, court records of the trial of uh, Red Fox, and they had access to those, as well as uh, some many stories from the uh, local college at that time uh, that they had also kept from that era. So um, they probably thought when they were first uh, writing this, oh, these stories are fine, you know, but, you know, they probably have, really aren't probably maybe all really true, that they're just sort of like a legend. But when they went through uh, all the newspaper morgues at that time and uh, at the, and as I said, up in the courthouse, uh, they actually found out that the stories that the local people were still telling were true <laughs> and that many of the things that were in the newspapers where people flooded in from far away here um, were not so true. So uh, then when they began touring the play locally, uh, there was, we don't use uh, a fourth wall in any of our, uh, any of our theater work. So we talked directly to people, you know, in a storytelling style. And we would be uh, maybe having a performance and someone from the audience would just interrupt and say, now, wait a minute, uh, here's what I think. And then they would tell uh, the story that they knew that we didn't have access to previously. And that might be, uh, and many times was, uh, then put into the script. So that's the, the script was really developed uh, locally, you could say. And uh, because with all of our work, we always uh, air it here uh, in the mountains before we would ever take it anywhere else. Because, uh, you know, these are our stories, the people's stories from here. And um, they really... Uh, are able to, to uh, be uh, great critics. And that's very helpful when you're trying to make good theater. 
let me just add one thing quickly, which is Red Fox is this, it's a bunch of tales and, and about people living in the time of the feuds and, you know, this, this, you know, violence and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a play that you, you watch it and it's very folky. It's very, feels kind of old fashioned. There's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of, you know, physical gags. And it's also the story of the coming of capitalism, modern policing and public executions to the mountains. It's the story of taking a group of people and domesticating them as laborers by a new, a newcome capitalist class. And so it is this very, very serious political story with relevance to lots and lots of communities in lots and lots of places that's wrapped up in this spinning of tales. And I would say amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Ben Fink, A.B. Spellman, and Donna Porterfield about, well, we're talking about the two-part anthology about the Roadside Theater Company called Art and Democracy, but we're really talking about the intersection of social justice movements, political commentary, and the arts, um, and the empowerment of some of our most vulnerable and marginalized people. Um, I, I, I said I was going to do volume one first and volume two second, but I actually think that it's important to hit this now because it sets us up for a conversation I want to have in a few. And A.B., I want to bring you into the conversation to talk about what was happening with Black theater during the tumultuous times of the 60s and the 70s, from the civil rights movement to the Black power movement, right? We saw the emergence of the Black arts movement, um, and reacting, right, to similar conditions created by the state, you know, ch- chattel slavery, Jim Crow, over-policing, criminalizing Black folks for the conditions that the state created, very particular images uh, uh, about us in the media of the time. How, do, how were Black artists and, and theater makers responding? Well, there's one of the privileges of my job at the Arts Endowment during those days was being able to see this entire movement across the country and not only the black community and not only in the rural community, but also in the Latino, the Asian American, the women's movement, uh, the gay and lesbian movement and so forth. Everybody who was uh, had a movement and everybody movement had like an arts arm to it. And uh, that arts arm was a part that it, it was my privilege to be able to work with in those days. Um, there's no question that these movements were the sort of um, one of the limbs of the struggle against social injustice of that time. No question about that at all. They were inspired by it and they participated in it as well as they could. One of the things that is not so much discussed about the Black Arts Movement and other movements is the psychological purpose of those decades, centuries actually, of slavery and Jim Crow had forced into the Black mentality a kind of an inferiority uh, sense that you were less than human, that you were certainly less than white people, that uh, you were incapable of self-government or determining anything for your community, and you were incapable of building anything that was worth building. And it was a part of the function of the Black Arts Movement, as well as these other movements, to reverse that mentality. So it was not just, it was certainly the the, the focus of the movement to speak against injustice, but it was also a purpose of the movement to build up an alternative kind of a force within the community, uh, which was led by people of, of strong mind and strong commitment. And it was wonderful to see how art could do that, how art could be, be an aspect of it. So with all of these movements going, I think another thing not so often talked about was coalition. I'm a firm believer in coalition and I don't think social change is ever created without it. And I think that uh, that is one of the problems and struggles of all times is getting people to come together across their own lines and create a force, a mass, that uh, you know that has to be 
responded to a mass that can force change. Uh, we see it happen often, uh, certainly among women now, we see, see that happen a lot, uh, but um, it is a hard thing to do because people are so concerned with their own needs and also because the system of social injustice also teaches everybody to be separate. It teaches, teaches black people to be uh, isolated from white people, for example, or Puerto Rican people or Latino people or Asian people to be isolated within their own communities. It is a mentality as well as a physical reality. And art is one thing that could break through all of that. And that is one of the things we got very proud about. So we had coalition, uh, as Donna was mentioning about the panels of the endowment, we had coalition, we had a conference where all of these communities came together and everybody spoke of what their issues were and what their accomplishments were. And everybody talked about, well, what can we share? What resources do we have? How can we support each other? I think that, that was a very profound thing. And it was even at the Rainbow Coalition, so-called, which uh, Jesse Jackson tried to build, was more reflected in this movement among uh, arts organizations uh, of, of these very diverse communities than anywhere else. I don't think it was ever as successful anywhere else as it was in this movement. Uh, yeah, a, a few things. I was actually just at a conference of organizers and talking about the importance and, and the difficulty of building coalition. But it said, if you agree with everybody in your coalition, it is not a coalition. It's a gathering of your homies. Um, and then something else that I feel like is touched on through the commentary in both the introductions of volume one and volume two is the lie of scarcity, right? The lie of scarcity that the state then utilizes to propel division, which then leads to, we still talk about it, right? The, the oppression Olympics. And then the third thing before, um, someone responds to those two things is I just always have to hearken back actually for the first rainbow coalition, chairman, Fred Hampton, senior founder of the black Panther party chapter in Chicago, yes. who, who again, became such a threat to the state because he was bringing poor whites, right? Poor Latinx folks, poor blacks together and, and pointing out our common enemy, um, which race-based capitalism and the violence of white supremacy. Um, ben, I think I want to turn to you for the to respond a little bit to the second uh, comment that I made, the lie of scarcity that the state utilizes to create division and how y'all's work pushed back on that. Yeah, it's a lie that they then work to make true, right? Hannah Arendt said in The Origins of Totalitarianism that when Joseph Stalin said the Moscow subway system is the only subway system in the world, that's only a lie until he's destroyed all the other subway systems, right? Then it's true. And that's the way the capitalist lie of scarcity works. That you take a situation where people are working together in coalitions, where there is enough to go around, where there is a recognition of what we share and what we can build together, and you drain all the money out of it through a series of culture wars and organizing in order to in order to make cuts at the top, um, and then there's not enough to go around, and people see each other as enemies, and suddenly the people who were building power together and were working together creatively to liberate themselves, liberate the imaginations of their communities in the way A.B. was talking about, suddenly do not feel that they have got room to do that because they are going to be squeezed any second. And where do oppression Olympics come from? They come from, if I don't get that grant funding, you're going to get it, and then there's not going to be enough for me, and vice versa. And so this model of what we call imposed scarcity, that's a quote from our colleague, Kate Fowler, um, who used to work at Apple Shop. She's now at a feminist print shop in, studio, in, in Richmond, Virginia, called Studio 2-3. Imposed scarcity means the scarcity model is not natural. This was a strategy that was done at specific times for specific reasons and specifically to break that solidarity, to break the bonds that allow black, white, Latino, et cetera, communities from working in coalition because those people that would exploit all of our communities, exploit all of our labor, recognize that 
the more united we are, the harder we, the harder we are to exploit. So there's a very specific history to that. We can go into the history of neoliberalism and the organizing that really started first against the New Deal in the 30s when you had the first major resurgence of populist art. And I mean populist in the way that MLK said populist is the only political ideology he would take on, the only label he would give himself, which is art that is of, by, and for all communities in their own words huge upsurge in populist art in the 30s, backed by the WPA and specifically the arts programs. And the there was organized resistance to it among bankers, among big corporations, among people that did not want this kind of popular expression and this kind of expression across cultural divides and across race and class and regional divides. And the committee that they formed in the 30s to destroy the federal theater project, part of the WPA arts projects, that committee went on to become the House Un-American Activities Committee, which destroyed a generation of artists and so much solidarity and memory. A lot of people don't know that the House Un-American Activities Committee came out of an effort to destroy theater and specifically an effort to destroy multiracial working class people's theater. That is the same trend that we see again and again and again. And what we talk most about in the book, because it's most relevant to Roadside and the companies that Roadside has worked with, is what's happened since the 80s when Reagan and his backers at the Heritage Foundation and the Koch Network um, and other participants in the, Leo, in the neoliberal movement, they take power and they start coming at the National Endowment for the Arts. They start coming at the National Endowment for the Humanities, at the Concentrated Employment, at the Neighborhood Self-Help Program, at HUD, in all of these programs that are legacies of people's movements, um, including Expansion Arts, which AB ran at, at the National Endowment for the Arts, that allowed for that those coalitions to build. They came at those programs really intentionally. It was not just a Republican Party effort. The biggest cuts that really hurt Roadside and a lot of other companies like it happened in the 90s under Bill Clinton. And since then, the field has not been the same. A.B., I'd love for you to to pick up right there, right? You were at the NEA, talk about the attacks under the Reagan administration. And then if you draw a line uh, from, from then to now and the political, cultural, and social realities we live with today. Yes, the, the thing about it is that the Ben is absolutely right when he said that the um, that there was an active and concentrated effort to destroy the very things that we believed in, which were art for people and of people and coalitions among people. The weapons that were used uh, for this are very familiar to all of us. First was the pronouncement of inferiority. That's something they beat us, beat us on the head with every day of the week. You go to the work at the Arts Endowment and you're in with, I'm not talking about my colleagues who worked at the endowment necessarily, but you would find, hear it in the National Council on the Arts. You would hear it from the major institutions of the arts that the money was being wasted on this inferior art, which did not belong in the agency at all, but belonged in uh, health and human services, say, or, um, or in HUD, but certainly not in an arts institutions. It's like when I was teaching at Harvard and uh, in the early days of Black Studies, and uh, Ewart Guineer was the chairman of the Black Studies Department at, at, at Harvard, and all of these Nobel Prize winners would be screaming in your ear every day you went to work that you were inferior and did not belong at Harvard. And that is exactly what it was at the Arts Endowment. Now, the, my job, of course, was to defend the program and I did it as well as I could and had to develop various lines of reasoning to do so. Uh, I would always claim that it was uh, the 21st century American art would be the art of diverse people and of, tech and of technological innovation. And I think that proved to be the case. And, um, but the thing that um, was so infuriating was that you would had to hear this criticism of, of inferiority from people who never bothered to attend a single concert 
that was put on by organizations of your field or attend a single art exhibit uh, to look to see if this work was of any worth whatsoever. And, and, did not, and it did not matter that they didn't know what they were talking about. They were so devoted to their point of view that they would beat you on the head with it anyway. It's like when you would hear like um, Giancarlo Minotti when he founded the Spoleto Festival in Charleston, South Carolina, declaring that jazz would never be presented at Spoleto because it was commercial music and it was lesser music. Now, that got beaten down in later years, but that was Carlo's devout belief. And it was the gender prevailing attitude within, within uh, the institutional arts community that there was nothing of value going on in these communities, that it was all social work. So was there another side of your question that I didn't get to? I was just asking then to, to, to make a connection to the realities we're, we're, we're living in today. Uh, the, the lasting effects of this. Yes, that, that, well, it, it hasn't it hasn't changed. Uh, there is, uh, except the tokenism has gotten uh, a bit larger, uh, but it's still tokenism. Uh, the thing is, if you try to get anything done that is of consequence, costs money, and um, is uh, going to to be true in the sense of the kind of radical as radical aspect that truth uh, actually means today. Uh, then it, it is less less possible. If you, if you do work, um, there is a kind of a welcoming in a tokenist sense of some artists who can perform within standards and to audiences uh, that are traditional in the institutional arts world. Uh, so they allow one or two per generation to get through that way. But the great work that is done at the ground level, that is done at the ground level, that is done to uh, reach directly into communities, uh, that work is very, very difficult to get funded in any meaningful way. You can get occasionally pro uh, minor projects off the ground, small things done, but the big work where you get all of the other youth in communities being exposed to work, being exposed to their own creativity uh, through the instruction of artists, uh, being brought into their own voices, that work has, has, is done in a guerrilla fashion. Uh, it is not done in any kind of organizational fashion. So you get these things. I used to speak of, of, of communities that were culture-rich but institution-poor. And we are still at a state of institutional poverty today, you know? You are listening to Law and Disorder. I am your host, Kat Brooks. I am in conversation with Donna Porterfield, A.B. Spellman, and Ben Fink. Uh, we're, we're talking about art in a democracy, and it's captured in a two-volume um, two collection of thought and plays. Uh, the, the politics are, are super intriguing, and, and I, I want to get back to them. But as a theater maker, I also want to talk uh, to you all about some of the ways you blew up the way um, more mainstreamed American theater happens. And I'm wondering if, if one of you can first talk about what you mean by bottom-up theater making. Um, I can tell you how I grew up. I had a father um, who just, well, you know, this is, I grew up without television. You know, we had a radio, but it was a different world. And uh, at that time, there were just plays going on everywhere in this little rural uh, place where I lived in, in uh, West Virginia. Um, you know, the, the social clubs would be doing a little play that they did. Um, there were plays that happened at uh, churches. Uh, there, were, there was all kinds of things. And my father uh, wrote a couple of little plays that he did with the young people at church. And uh, sometimes these were toured to other churches. But my point is, there was just uh, all sorts of theater everywhere, including professional theater that would come through uh, every once in a while. So um, my father took me to all of that. My mother and brother uh, liked sports more than theater. <laughs> so they, uh, they took uh, that route. What Donna is talking about, which is so, so, so important to Roadside's work, is what the folklorist Alan Lomax called 
the inherent genius of every cultural community. That every community, every culture has a genius and it's expressed in its own way. And what the work of art in a democracy is to recognize that and to amplify it so that more people can hear it. That understanding of culture, what you could call bottom-up theater, is the opposite of what A.B. was talking about, this cultural elitism that says that there is a small number of people who tend to be wealthy, who tend to be white, who tend to be male, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, tend to be urban, tend to be big institutionalized, that have the cultural genius that is the thing that matters and should matter to everyone. And so what we should be doing is broadcasting the work of that small elite to all of the benighted, ignorant masses. The art of the castle, the art, and not the art of the community. Yeah, and and even in the way roadside and 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 AB you could probably talk about black theater companies as well did residencies, right? I really loved how you mm-hmm. pointed out the difference between the way you all did it, which I'll let you explain. You'll do it better than I will, and and what we know of as traditional residencies, which to that same point, like one artist is given this chunk of money to go fulfill their vision in a community that they may not even be from, right? Um, right. Just want to go in there and, and, and tell the story. And it, it's, it's more a practice of extraction than contribution um, as, as that process rolls out. How do you all do it differently? Well, what we decided is that uh, we would do longer term uh, residencies in communities. And we did a lot of these across time. But what we did uh, would be would be to uh, go in and listen uh, to what people uh, were interested in and what they were doing and what and what was important in that particular uh, community. And we also, um, along with uh, uh, John O'Neill, used story circles uh, quite a bit when we were doing that. And uh, then we would come in and out, because the money was available, we would come in and out of that community over time. And at the end of the residency, usually, in almost every case, uh, the folks at each site would have uh, made a play from the stories in their own community and um, that that community was really celebrated by everybody through uh, this play. It was very empowering to people. And uh, I never saw it once fail. And it wasn't because uh, we at Apple Shop were just so smart. It's just because... <laughs> You know, when you're there and sort of open something to someone, they take it and run because, you know, of course, they were good at it. And specifically, it's not that we were so smart, it's that the communities were so smart. It's that there is that inherent genius of every cultural community. And what we did is work to catalyze it, right? We come in with a certain set of knowledge, we meet the community and get to know their knowledge, we share and we build together, as opposed to the typical residency. And AB, because Donna did bring up John O'Neill, and I'm I'm running out of time, and and I don't want to to lose this thread that y'all pick up in volume two. Who was John O'Neill? And then um, talk about the Free Southern Theater. And then and then third part of that question um, is the beautiful magic that happened at the Highlander Center. Yeah, uh, John O'Neill was uh, was an, a SNCC worker. He worked for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a field organizer. And the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was largely uh, an organization built from uh, students from the various African, usually um, African-American, African-American students from around the country and white people who, white students who uh, were of a sympathetic mind. And um, the Free Southern Theater started out as sort of an agitprop arm of the SNCC movement. Uh, I should point out that it, uh, he started this theater a good three years before 
Baraka moved from lower Manhattan to Harlem and uh, started his, his organization in Harlem, which is often cited as the beginning of the Black Arts Movement. I argue that it was not, that it was, that it was a continuum, but I won't go into all of that. At any rate, um, at the Free Southern Theater, John organized, John, when he created the Free Southern Theater, John put together uh, theater artists recruited from various campuses, and he um, would stage plays in communities that SNCC was trying to organize. So they'd go into a hardcore racist area in deep Mississippi, and uh, they would put on a play like Waiting for Godot which would be often thought of as something for cerebral people sitting in uh, chamber theaters around the country. But in this case, they were presented in a way that made it live to the realities of the community. So waiting for, so Godot never coming becomes the fact that the freedom, the liberation that you're looking for in your lives will never come as long as you sit there and wait for it. They would uh, put on the play, they would hold a discussion, the community would participate, they would throw in their own census of meetings. Fannie Lou Hamer had great quotes uh, related to that production and so forth. And then the SNCC people would come in and say, now look, this is what you need to do to change this. Let's get this voter registration thing going right here. And uh, you don't have to wait for Godot. And they did the same thing with, with uh, numerous plays of, of that nature. So they travel around all the way through the rural South, sometimes going on uh, boats up the Mississippi, getting all putting up their, 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 their material in any facility they could find or outdoors if they needed to. And, uh, and the organizers came with them. It was great work. Uh, Luis Valdez did a similar thing in California with the great workers and, and this El Teatro Campesino. Uh, there were uh, street theater companies around the company around the country where uh, people would come by in a flatbed truck and jump jump off in communities and and put on plays in the parking lot uh, or any place that was open enough and could and could host a play and then have discussions about the issues raised in the play and how those issues reverberated in your life and of course the Black Arts Movement as well as the other movements started producing a number of playwrights and so you started getting actual um, you know, actual actual uh, documents, um, actual plays that uh, could were intended to do this work as well. So it was uh, it was great great theater uh, because it was so immediate. It um, was theater that was invested in people in communities directly, uh, and they responded to it. Uh, it was a great example of how serious, even abstract thought could be presented to communities of color, to poor and indigenous people, and, and they could be received if the work was well done, and people could participate in discussions and understand how these seemingly abstract ideas affected their lives. It was, um, it was, was and is what remains of it, great work in American uh, theater, and I think it uh, needs to be much more celebrated. I'm really glad that places like Apple Shop survived it, and a few organizations did survive the uh, removal of um, funding for this kind of work, because as you know, funding is rather fickle, and it gets it's it's rather faddish, and uh, you know sometimes uh, a more fashionable disease will come in and be and replace you as a source of funding, as they used to say. Well, and, uh, this is sometimes uh, I run an organization called the Anti-Police Terror Project, and, and uh, sometimes I watch people's mouths drop when I say the only reason why we get the grant to get right now is because dead black bodies are trending, but that could change tomorrow. Absolutely, and it will. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would like, I, I know Ben or if Don, if you want to do it, I'd like you to walk us through one of the scripts that's in volume two, and that is of Junebug Jack. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, June Bug Jack, you know, because we were, uh, working, uh, across cultures and in some ways, um, took a long time to develop. Uh, you know, we visited each other's communities. Um, we did performances in each other's, uh, communities um, John would bring uh, his children in the summer uh, to Appalachia. They actually uh, stayed at my house sometimes, and sometimes they had their own place. 
and um, we would uh, do a lot of talking, a lot of thinking, and uh, figuring out a lot of story circles and figuring out uh, what it was we wanted to do together or if we wanted to do something together. Well, it ended up that, of course, we did want to do something together. And uh, the development of that, which took place uh, over time, um, was uh, Junebug Jack. And that was done uh, with stories stories from uh, the Junebug end and uh, stories from the roadside end and some stories that crossed. And, uh, you know, we uh, toured that. We had a tour uh, through the South. And we always had, uh, when we could, had story circles uh, after the performance. And uh, those story circles, uh, because the the uh, community that that it, another thing that we did when we went when we did that, in order to get uh, people together who usually won't come to the theater together, uh, this was in uh, Starkville, Mississippi. We um, we had the folks uh, develop a community choir. And in the community choir might be uh, this church and that church, or uh, not a church at all, other people. Uh, It was black and white. It was uh, of all different kinds of folks. And um, we worked that into uh, a version of Junebug Jack and made them a part of that production. They weren't just a chorus off at the side. They were actually also uh, performing. And uh, that really uh, had a... uh, it just really echoed in the community. And they kept, uh, after we left, uh, the uh, choirs anyway, uh, continued uh, to do uh, music uh, together. So there were, you know, there were those kinds of things that happened with Junebug Jack. Yeah, I love the, the choir piece of that story in the book. Um, we are about to have to close this out, but Ben, my final question, or and Ben, my final question is for you about your afterward, uh, an invitation of populism. Why, why end there? And what is the invitation? The invitation is to continue the story. Lots of roadside plays end with some variation of, all right, we've told the story this far. And now you all have to take it from here, right? The ending isn't clear and tidy and tied up and neat in a bow and everybody goes home. We've gotten this far and where can you all take it from here? And so that's the way that we wanted to end this book. We started it with a dedication that says dedicated to you, reader. May you find something useful. May you find something to build on. And the ending the invitation to populism is that is taking you've seen now over these two volumes acted out in terms of plays in terms of stories in terms of essays and critical analysis this tradition this tradition of people working in coalition across all kinds of so-called insurmountable divides through creating together through recognizing each other's inherent genius through the connection of telling stories building power and creating wealth where can we take it from here where can you take it from here you're not starting from scratch these stories that have been variously repressed we're we're offering them to you this is why we put this book together and what can you do with them and the specific content of that chapter came from our realization toward the end of the book creation process that we had never, we hadn't explicitly talked about organizing a lot. We hadn't explicitly talked about building power and the, that the inherent way in which part of this work is building power. You know, AB talks about in his essay about John O'Neill and the free Southern theater that The Free Southern Theater made beautiful theater that was of tremendous aesthetic value and also 
that theater would not have been deemed a success if black folks in the deep south had not gotten the right to vote. And that part of the work, that theater was a part of the work and building power was a part of the work and creating community wealth as a part of the work and that those things inform each other, that's what we wanted to tease out in a little more of an explicit way at the end of the book to say, this is what we can offer you. This is how far we have gotten. And it is an invitation to take it from here. As both an organizer and a theater maker, I just want to share my deep gratitude uh, for for this body of work. You've been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guests today have been Ben Fink, A.B. Spellman, and Donna Porterfield. Ben Fink worked with the Roadside Ensemble 2015 to 2020 as a member of the Betsy Scholar Circle, as the founding organizer of the Letcher County Culture Hub, and the Performing Our Future Coalition, and as the co-founder of the Cross-Partisan Dialogue Project, Hands Across the Hills. Ben was recognized by Time Magazine as one of 27 people bridging divides across America. He is the general editor of the Art and Democracy Selected Plays of the Roadside Theater Anthology that we've been talking about today. Donna Porterfield was managing director of Roadside Theater from 1979 to 2019 with oversight responsibility for all of the theater's personnel and financial matters. Her playwriting credits include Thousand Kites, Voices from the Battlefront, Junebug Jack, and Corn Mountain, Pine Mountain, Following the Seasons. And A.B. Spellman, poet and essayist, he has written extensively on jazz. For 30 years, he worked at the National Endowment for the Arts. For about half the time, he was director of the Expansion Arts Program, and the other half, he was deputy chairman. All of our guests are contributors and editors to the two-part anthology of the Roadside Theater Company called Art and Democracy, Volume 1 is the Appalachian History Plays, and Volume 2 is the Intercultural Plays. Thank you all for your work, um, for this body of, of, of writing, and for joining us on the show. Thank you for having us. A pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA, that's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.